You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer with York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. On the show, a new program to encourage families to take just 20 minutes a day in 2020 to read and learn together. Also ahead, Hurricane Hazel McCallion turns 99. She's busier than ever. How does she do it? Stick around and find out. But we begin with the reality of homelessness. Well, a small act of kindness can change a life. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm joined by Michael Braithwaite, Blue Door. We are talking about opening doors for people. We're dealing with the situation of homelessness in York Region. We're also going to explore the coldest night of the year walk coming up on February 22nd. Thanks for being here. So what is going on in York Region in terms of homelessness and who's affected? Well, I think in uh, areas like York Region, we have a population of close to 1.2 million people. But because it's spread over nine municipalities, people don't see it. But on any given night, there's an estimated 1,500 people experiencing homelessness. And when we don't see it, we assume it's not there. So part of what we have, our, our work in New York Region, is always creating awareness that, yes, this is an issue, and, and yes, there are some good organizations doing some good work around it. Are you telling me, then, that some people are suffering silently? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that uh, when you ask people, and this, you know, you can't see me, but when you ask people to describe homelessness, usually they describe a middle-aged <laughs> or older uh, white man with a, with a big beard. So they're describing me. So that's what they see on the streets of downtown Toronto. And, and homelessness, I always say, it's not about a look, it's about a feeling, a feeling of desperation, loneliness, and not feeling safe. What is homelessness? Is it literally a lack of a, of a home, a, a safe shelter, uh, which you can call your own? What exactly is homelessness? Well, I mean, aside from a formal definition, I always say that it, it's without a safe and affordable place to call home. There are people in homes right now, especially youth, uh, who... They're choosing to stay home, not because it's a safe option, because there is no other option. And so they're homeless in a way. But even that label we have to be careful with. We, we don't actually want someone to describe themselves as homeless, because that's, that's a dangerous slippery slope. And many youth don't want to be saddled with that stigma. I don't have a safe place to call home, but I'm not homeless. I'm not that person. So when we look at young people, and that really is uh, a great concern for all of us, no matter where we live, we just got a new stat out that says one in five children live below the poverty line here in Canada, which is shocking, a nation like ours. But we also think about young people trying to go to school, trying to put food in their mouths, trying to find a safe place in which to nurture and grow their academic spirit and their just their joie de vivre. It must be really, really difficult. Difficult. How do you connect with young people who are struggling to make their way in the world? Well, I think a little bit about connecting with young people is actually changing the way we approach it, changing our language. Uh, if you put up a big billboard saying, hey, if you're homeless, a homeless youth, come see us, no one, no one wants to be saddled with that, that stigma or uh, that, that label. But it is really about outreach workers and your team going out there talking to, do you have a safe place to go tonight? Do you need to talk with someone? Um, and also understanding all the different issues that lead youth into homelessness, the past, mental health issues, family breakdown. 80% of kids who experience homelessness or youth say it started with family breakdown. So we need to work a little 
little smarter on preventative measures to keep families together and give families the supports they need so this doesn't happen. Two words come to mind, food and warmth, and, and particularly this time of the year, thus the walk, the coldest night of the year walk coming up February 22nd. The weather is just incredibly difficult for anyone uh, to survive in, the, and food is the essence of life. We need water, we need food uh, so that we can keep going, but also so that we can have some bit of dignity uh, is still within our grasp. So how do you handle that with anybody who is struggling in York Region? Well, I think there's a variety of ways that we, we can support, too. I mean, there's we, we don't do it alone, so it's not one sector. We have, we work with the food banks. We work with the York Region Food Network and others who are helping out around the food piece, too. And most of the agencies that provide emergency housing um, see food as a key component, too. Um, but I think it's not just about emergency shelters. It's not let's just get a roof over that person's head and keep them alive. We have to think a little differently. It's about rapidly rehousing people, looking at that housing first approach, which not only saves lives, but it saves a lot of money. Emergency housing, hospitals, um, incarceration, those are all things that are not all that positive and cost a lot of money. Uh, homelessness costs us $7 billion a year in Canada. How can we change things? You know, we can talk about this until we are blue in the face or blue door, but yeah. how can we make change? I, I think we have to look at a variety of different innovations, right? We're, we need to build 40,000 housing units a year to keep up, and that, that simply might not happen right away. But there's programs like Night Stop that 360 Kids runs in York Region where people are actually taking low-risk youth into their uh, empty rooms that they have. That's basically out of England. We can look to Finland, who's probably going to be the first country to end homelessness, and they're investing money in supportive housing, unique ways to do that, tiny homes. Um, and even with the work we're doing at Blue Door, it's a lot easier for us to go out and rent homes and then provide supportive housing to uh, our clients than it is for them to go out and do that because of some of the barriers that are there. You're presently um, the top dog at uh, Blue Door. You've spent time as the head of Raising the Roof and also 360 Kids. Have you been able to save a life? Yeah, you know what? I, I can't take any of that credit. The frontline workers are the, the real heroes uh, out there, but um, yeah. they save lives every day, and they face really, really, it's really tough, tough work. You obviously care very much. We need to change our attitude, our societal attitude about homelessness. How can we start that process? Well, you know, I, I think most Canadians care. They just don't understand the issue, right, going forward. So I think it really start with kindness, right? When you walk by someone, just be kind. You know, you have to be careful sometimes because there's mental health issues involved. But being kind doesn't take, it doesn't cost you anything. And then it's just get involved. Get involved with these coldest night of the year walks. And that's how you can do your part. Let's talk about that. February 22nd, and it probably will be very cold that night. It's symbolic, though, uh, and it's right across the country. So what is the purpose of the walk, and who do you expect will be joining you? Well, the purpose of the walk is really it's a uh, national event where everyone comes together on one night, and it's really to, to raise much-needed dollars, but also that awareness of that collective effort of we care. Um, and it, so in York Region right now, there's three different walks. You can get involved in Blue Doors in East Quillenberry, uh, the Mosaic Out of the Cold program in Richmond Hill, and the In from the Cold in Newmarket. But, I mean, of course, I want you to sign up for Blue Doors, but it doesn't matter. Just sign up somewhere, wherever you are. Get involved. You could do a two-and-a-half-kilometer walk or, or a five-kilometer walk. You can pay $25 to take part, or you could just simply raise money, and it won't cost you anything, and you're part of the solution. That's how you get involved. How does someone who needs your help 
get in touch with you. You know, not everyone has access to the Internet. Not everyone has a phone or a cell phone, uh, money for transportation. How can someone connect with you at the most basic level? Well, we're looking at coordinated access for York Region. All of us work together on this. Uh, 211 is a great access to call. Um, but really, you'd be actually surprised that 90% of people that are experiencing homelessness actually have a phone. That's their only connection, right? So uh, go to our website, bluedoor.ca, um, and, and check us out. And there's also people are developing these different apps. There's a group called Ample Labs um, that is uh, developing this Chalmers app where people can actually just say to the phone, I need a meal, I need a place to stay, I need clothing, and it will, it will direct them to the closest place. You're not just a stopgap measure. You also want to help people move forward on their path. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, again, like I said, this is not, uh, homelessness is complex. Um, it is not just about a roof, but it's actually about putting them in housing and supporting them beyond that. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to sit on a jury panel and hear horrific details of a murder or a rape or both? Uh, let's now welcome to the feed Mark Ferrant, who was a juror and whose life has never been the same since. What happened? I was a juror on a first-degree murder trial. It was, it's also called an NCR case, a not criminally responsible case, in 2014. It was a graphic, um, a graphic case. Um, it involved the murder of a young woman, um, by her on-again, off-again boyfriend. She had her throat slit from ear to ear. She was stabbed 27 times. Um, and she was doused with an accelerant and set on fire. Um, the uh, assailant um, continued to attempt to set the building on fire um, and set himself on fire um, as part of a botched murder-suicide. So it was a really, really disturbing case um, and a difficult one with the charges that were involved um, because an NCR case means um, you're essentially admitting guilt but you're um, um, excusing yourself from the crime because of a, of a mental illness. So it's a difficult charge for a jury to go through. So after that was over and before sentencing, what happened? So he was found guilty of second-degree murder, and uh, prior to sentencing, he hung himself in the West Toronto Detention Centre. Um, in court, he was present, but he was also a changed individual, so he had suffered burns to um, 100% of his body, he was disabled. Um, he lost um, his leg was actually amputated as a result of the injuries from the fire. So there were it was a really disturbing case all around. How did you come to terms with everything that you saw and you heard? So it's as if the curtain has come down or the lights have gone out uh, and it's now Mark's time just to try to move on and, and to live. How could you? Well, in court, I certainly took the responsibility very seriously, as, as every juror does when you're invested in this case. So um, I, you know, understood that the feelings I had at the time, which were stress and anxiety and um, and the like, would just go away. That's part of the job, I assumed. So um, I just focused on the trial, focused on my work because I was still working during the case. I was I was going to work after after court every day until you know midnight to to 
keep my job going. Um, but again, I just thought that would all dissipate after the verdict and it didn't. I couldn't get the images out of my head. I couldn't, um, I didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to understand what was going on with me at the time. So I just, I just figured if I put my head down, continue to work, continue to focus, it would all go away. And that's just the wrong thing to do entirely. Why did you put together the Canadian jurors, juries commission? Why would you put something like that together when you as an individual were struggling so much? Well, I understood that this, I was not alone, one. So jurors from landmark cases and, and cases you probably never heard of contacted me when I went public seeking um, more supports for jurors in Ontario and then across the country. And I realized that the jury needs a voice. The jury is not represented by any organization. Um, the jury is not a vocation. You don't wake up in the morning and decide you're going to be a professional juror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a civic duty. But we've overlooked this civic duty for decades. It hasn't had investment. It hasn't had um, really uh, kept up to date with the complex world we live in today. How important is a juror's mental health during and after when it comes to your mandate, the Canadian Juries Commission? What? How is that going to work? It's vital. Um, the mental health of the jury is is absolutely core to to our mandate. Um, if you think about it, a juror doesn't have professional development. They don't have training. They don't have the kind of apparatus, say, that first responders, police, judges, court officials, um, lawyers have to prepare themselves for what they're going into. Um, jury, The jury is not even informed of the case. So you're walking into this vacuum and then suddenly you're, you're seeing images that you couldn't imagine looking at. And again, it's part of the role. It's part of the civic duty. But we owe jurors the same support post-trial and during trial that our public safety and, and public service officials receive now. So... When it's all said and done, the jury is dismissed. Everybody's on their way. They're trying to put the pieces back together of their lives. There's no help there for them. There doesn't seem to be any recognition that the jury needs help getting through the aftermath. We were fortunate um, through my work and the work of others to have uh, some of the provinces put in what is called, called a juror support program, but it's really just, um, it's really superficial. It's great that it's there and we're glad it's there, but we really want to provide jurors with the kind of evidence-based training, evidence-based clinical-based models that our uh, police and first responders and veterans get right now. That's the type of mental health support that's really necessary. And what about after the fact? Let's just drill it down. What do you need? What does a juror who's gone, who's been maybe uh, on the jury for the Tory Stafford trial, Michael Rafferty, for mm. the Paul Bernardo trial, for uh, any of the uh, Dellen Millard, uh, the, the just horrific details would have come out through that trial. So what do you need after the fact? You need to have access to um, to counseling and support. You need to be able to you need to be able to talk about the all aspects of the trial. And, and right now there's a bill before the Senate, which we're supporting called Bill S-207. If you can imagine right now a juror it's illegal for you to have a conversation about deliberation, about the trial itself, openly with a mental health practitioner. So imagine not being able to unpack the very thing that is causing you pain and anguish. Um, it's, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. 
Our listeners are a compassionate bunch. Uh, so is the team here at 105.9 The Region. What can we do to help this along, to, to make this happen? Well, the, the best thing you can do is contact your local MP, your local member of parliament. And we, what do we say? We appeared before the Justice or the Finance Committee uh, requesting an investment in jury duty, requesting that the federal government, which mandates its citizens to perform jury duty through the criminal code and the Charter of uh, Human Rights and Freedoms, you're mandated federally to respond to your summons. Thus, we think the federal government has a responsibility to invest in jury duty, to to promote it, to um, uh, provide safeguards. So contact your MP and vo- voice your concerns and, and raise support for the Canadian Juries Commission. You are, are a champion of the cause, that is for sure. Is that helping you in your own personal journey to have this kind of commitment and, and the need and the desire and the vehicle for change? I never wanted anybody performing jury duty to go through what I went through after the fact. So um, I feel I feel a great satisfaction that we've taken this conversation to the highest levels of public office and we've made it an issue. So every day that, that I achieve something like that, I feel better. Mark Ferrant, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you very much for having me. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Ann Romer, Afua Ba, next with a program to encourage families to read 20 minutes a day every day. We're getting back to the basics with reading being a fun family affair. So joining me to chat today about Take 20 in 2020 is none other than Mac Rogers, Executive Director of ABC Life Literacy Canada. Mac, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Afua. It is my pleasure, of course. Uh, talk to me about ABC Life Literacy. Sure. We're a national charity that focuses on raising uh, literacy levels for adults and, and families all across the country. Um, we just last week uh, on January 27th celebrated our 21st annual Family Literacy Day, which was a, a really a fantastic uh, celebration where organizations all across the country are, are talking about family literacy, participating in family literacy, and everywhere from dining room tables to school rooms to workplaces, people are are really kind of celebrating and getting behind us. So it's just a fantastic time to do it. Awesome. Okay, so then first off, congratulations uh, is at hand, of course, for having that 21st anniversary pass uh, not too long ago. Talk to me about uh, just generally how this sort of organization came about. How did it sort of come into place with recognizing that there is a need just to continue to promote family literacy? Sure. So ABC has been around for uh, almost 30 years now. Um, We've been focusing on family literacy as well as other types of literacy really because of the research that we found that says that family literacy is so important to the uh, eventual academic and and social outcomes for children. So in 2010, the National Institute of of Health recognized that a a mother's reading skill is the greatest factor that affects the children's future academic success. That's over uh, where they live as well as their family income. So, I mean, we see these stats over and over again. Um, you know, kids that grow up in a family that are um, have lots of reading going on are high literate parents. They're exposed to 30 million more uh, words than kids that have families that are less literate. So it really is an example of the gap that can happen if we're not reading with our kids and modeling that really strong behavior of, of literacy. If you can talk to me about some of the barriers, I know you touched on it just a little bit right now, but some of the barriers with uh, family literacy in general. 
Yeah, so first, I mean, as a parent, um, I think we can all recognize that time is an issue. It, it, it's hard to really kind of get the time that we think we need to read, but it doesn't take that much time. That's the whole reason for the Take 20 uh, Family Literacy Day celebration, is that we want to make sure that people take that little bit of time to model the good behavior and participate with their kids. And it doesn't have to be reading. Uh, literacy can take all sorts of different uh, forms. It can, you can talk about singing. You can talk about games. One of the resources we like to uh, that really um, promotes this and supports this is our HSBC Family Literacy First program. And you can go online, and it's all free, and you can download almost 70, or sorry, more than 75 different stories and activities. And it doesn't have to just be in English. We have it in English, in French, simplified Chinese, Tagalog, and Arabic. So what you're reading, what you're playing with, what you're doing when it comes to learning as a family is not specific to any one thing. It doesn't, you don't have to think about it as just being that book, sitting down and reading every night. It can be making uh, making dinner together, doing your grocery list, playing with budgets, all sorts of different things are going to really help your kids advance. And I really love that you just sort of helped explain that a little bit. We always think it's always, it always has to be confined to a book, but it's anything that you can necessarily read. And I mean, that will definitely expand um, the vocabulary of children while they're growing up. So that's awesome. And it's a great tip that I, I love that you just mentioned there. If you could just talk to me a little bit about how important it is for parents to continue to take an active role in child learning and, of course, literacy, especially in the early ages. Yeah, so, I mean, literacy is a skill, and like any other skill, it can actually deteriorate if you're not using it all the time. So a lot of people, they, they may peak, uh, a lot of adults may peak in their literacy skills in high school or wherever they, whatever level of education they finished, and then it starts to kind of deteriorate over years. So what we encourage is as soon as you have an opportunity to participate in literacy, and, and family literacy is such a great way to do it because it's fun and engaging, then that's going to improve both your literacy skills as well as your, your child's literacy skills. And really, it's kind of about finding the fun that is your family. So every family is going to be different. We certainly don't want to say that this is the right way and this is the wrong way to do it. It's really about learning as a family and becoming lifelong learners. That's always been our motto here at ABC. It's always been what we what we strive for, both as a team, but also what we promote. So taking those 20 minutes, doing something fun is going to make such a huge difference. All right. Okay. And so that leads me into, of course, Take 20 in 2020. I know Family Literacy Day passed uh, last month, but if you can talk to me about uh, this initiative, that is something that's going to be happening all year round. Yeah, so there, HS, the HSBC Family Literacy First program is something that's available all the time. It's always free. You're, you can um, recommend it to your teachers, your, your schools, those types of things if you want support with it. But you can also just go online. It, the website is familyliteracyfirst.ca. And you go online, you can download the activities, and they're not all reading and writing. There's some art, there's some cooking, there's some math, there's some games, there's science and technology, lots of different things you can play with, and it's available all the time and all you do is you download an activity you have some fun with it and then you celebrate that you're doing this um, so it's really about kind of a parent is the child's first and most important teacher in our opinion we really believe that we believe that um, you're always going to be working with your kid from the time they're born till the time you're no longer with them it's you know it's always about um, engaging with them modeling this great behavior and just having fun with literacy and, um, of course, with that initiative, it, 20 minutes is not really that long. It could be a book. It could be a challenge. It could be just find, you know, three words that you can use to make this sentence and just make it, um, as you mentioned, just a fun experience. 
Yeah, and one of the best ways to engage kids, particularly when you're starting, you, you may not want to jump right into a book if that's not part of your family uh, culture, is you may want to start with um, games. Games are a really great way, way to get people to read. You can work with your child to read the actual instructions um, for the game. You can actually, there actually many games have reading embedded in them. There's numeracy embedded in a lot of games. If you're talking about dice or if you're talking about playing cards, there's a lot of numeracy embedded in that. So it's about kind of finding those little pieces um, and it doesn't have to be in the home uh, one of the one of the most um, successful activities we have is doing uh, scavenger hunts on the walk to and from school you know you can say can you find something that starts with the letter R or something that starts with the letter L you know you can just make make it fun and make it take it wherever you go um, it'll make your travel more fun as well so that's a little bonus <laughs> and you know what incentives candy goes a long way let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> great idea yeah, absolutely. Bribery works. <laughs> it does. In, in, in the good senses, <laughs> we shouldn't be encouraging yeah. that, but in the good senses, of course. Where can residents then go for more information, of course, on this, uh, this great initiative? Yeah, so our website has lots of different information. That's abcliveliteracy.ca. And as well as if you're looking just for some activities, I highly recommend familyliteracyfirst.ca. In York Region, there's lots of different groups that uh, participate in Family Literacy Day or in HSBC Family Literacy First, including the Vaughan Public Libraries, the York Region District School Board, Ontario Early Years Centers. All of them participate with us. Um, you can talk to them about how, how you can access their programming, and that can really kind of um, connect it back both to the home and back to the school or back to the care center. That really kind of makes a nice um, synergy between what's going, what's happening at home and what's happening out in, there, in the kids' everyday world. Mac, thank you so much for joining me today and, of course, just giving us all of the information and resources that we need so that uh, we remember that literacy doesn't necessarily have to be a chore. It can always be a fun family event. Mac, thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Ann Romer. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. For a replay of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region. What a pleasure on the feed to be joined by Hazel McCallion, who just celebrated her 99th birthday. Thank you for being with us. How does it feel to be 99? Just another year. <laughs> when you... No different than... 29, 39, or 99. <laughs> when you opened your eyes on your birthday, what was the first thought that went through your head? That I had to get up and let the dog out and take her for a walk. That's great. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the wonderful things that have happened in your life, and then we'll discuss what is still to come. You were raised on a farm. Your mother really ran the farm, and your father had a business. You went to business school in Montreal. There was a, a sort of a thread through that, and that was your love of hockey and your passion for playing hockey. Why was hockey so important to you and still is? Well, I had... Uh Learned to skate at the age of five on a on a pond in a hayfield because we didn't have arenas then. And uh, after I graduated from high school in uh, Quebec City, I went on to Montreal to take a business course at Notre Dame Secretarial School. And then I went to work. And when I got to Montreal, I found out there was a female hockey league in Montreal. So I decided to try out for the hockey league and 
I, I was accepted, so therefore I played, uh, Hawking was paid for it, in other words, uh, for uh, a year. But then, unfortunately, uh, my job, uh, the company I worked for, uh, I was transferred to Toronto uh, to build, uh, to help the uh, the um, boss uh, open up an office to build a synthetic rubber plant at Sarnia. So, and there was no hockey, female hockey league in Toronto, so therefore my short time as a hockey player ended. You picked that up again, though. I remember seeing wonderful pictures of you. She shoots, she scores. <laughs> so let's now talk about life as it changed. So you were living in the greater Toronto area. I believe that uh, you met your husband, Sam, in church in 1951. You were married the same year. Where did you and Sam put down roots? No, I, I met my husband in 1947. And we were married in 1951. And uh, I became active in the Anglican Church, in Anglican Young People's Association at St. Michael All Angels on St. Clair Avenue in Toronto. That's where I met him, my husband. And where and, did you uh, put down roots? Where did you and your husband go to live? We uh, went to live in Streetsville. We bought a five-acre property on Britannia Road in Streetsville. And at that point, did you uh, have your first foray into the world of journalism? There's something that I recall called the Streetsville Booster. Oh, no, that was later years. Yeah, that was later years. At what point did you decide that you were going to give politics a try? Well, I retired from the company I worked for, a Canadian Kellogg company, and uh, got involved in Streetsville District and Chamber of Commerce, and then uh, therefore had some connection with the council of the town of Streetsville. And then uh, the mayor asked me to join the planning board of the town of Streetsville, which I did. And then the next thing, I was encouraged to run for office. Now, there were no women on the Streetsville Council, so I undertook something. that was So the first year I ran, I was defeated. The next year I ran, and then I never looked back. What made you decide that... Mayor of Streetsville in 1970. Uh, then in 1974, uh, the province brought in regional government and put Streetsville, Port Credit, and Autonomous Saga together to form the city of Mississauga. And in 1978, I ran for mayor of the city of Mississauga. Shortly after that, in 1979, was the Mississauga train derailment. My first year as yeah, mayor. Yeah, that's a, that's a big first year. What do you remember about that period of time? What period? When the train derailment took place and your involvement in keeping the community oh. safe and, uh, and, and informed. Well, I, was, I, I didn't go to bed for three nights, so that gives you some idea how involved we were because we had a major disaster on our hands, a chlorine tank with a big hole in it that was and the chlorine was being emitted into the air and chlorine is deadly. So it was quite a an, a, a challenge. And what were some of the things that you managed to do in order to keep everyone feeling positive and, again, safe through this. This was a massive undertaking in order to clean it up and to get the, the community moving forward again. Strictly communication. You have to be honest. You have to tell the people the way it is. When we asked 
230,000 people to leave the city because of the danger of chlorine. They left, and uh, uh, the province came in to help, and the staff of the city was outstanding. The uh, uh, citizens were great. I mean, everybody pulled together. It was what I call a super team effort. Why did you decide that you wanted to continue to be the mayor of Mississauga? I could see the potential of building a great city. It was uh, a rural area at the time, but I felt that uh, we could build a wonderful city uh, in this area. And so I saw the vision of what could happen. And so we got on the way. And you strike me as someone who seldom takes no for an answer. So let's talk about your relationship with various uh, levels of government. Uh, over the many years that you were mayor of Mississauga, you worked with different prime ministers, different parties federally, same thing provincially. Was it challenging or was it a learning curve for you? It was challenging, but I uh, worked hard and I took strong stands and... and uh, Prove to them, uh, prove to them that we, as a city, uh, ran a city the way a city should be run, or a, uh, a municipality. Uh, uh, good financial controls, uh, good planning principles, and um, so the, the both levels of government recognized that we're working with the developers to build a city where, for people, where the services would be there. And that the financial controls would be in play. We ran a, I ran a city for some 20 years without debt. Wow. Let's talk I don't know of any other city that's done that, but I'm sure there is. I, I am not aware of one at this point, uh, but I must ask you the, the commitment on your part to making sure that the needs of your citizens came first. That's right. Uh, we did planning for people. And uh, when you plan for people, you therefore, first of all, uh, make sure that all the services are there that they need. And secondly, that you give value for the tax dollars that they pay. How did you know what to do? You know, you were trained in, in business. Uh, you did not attend university. It's my understanding that at that point it just wasn't financially feasible. But oh. you stepped into the political arena, and you just seem to know what to do. Oh, you know, common sense and hard work is put together as a pretty good formula. What is it that makes you happy? You know, you're, you work hard, you've worked hard all your life. What makes you tick? What makes you happy? What makes you, you know, comfortable and relaxed? Oh, I'm happy because I, I, could, I had a a vision of what I could that could be accomplished, and I set out to do it, and that makes you happy. Uh, sure, you have challenges along the way, but you face the challenges and find solutions and continue on with your vision uh, of what you want to accomplish. You have to have people at the heart of your vision, uh, working with people and being concerned about people. And who is in your life now? I know you lost your your husband, uh, and you've you know you've made the city of Mississauga your family, your second family, yeah, if yeah. you will. Uh, so, who is in your your 
personal inner inner circle now? Who do you speak with every single day and share time with and and break bread with and and just feel comfortable with? Well, hundreds of people. You know, I I have different breakfast people I meet for you know, in different parts of the city. It, it's, it's numerous. I don't have any one group that I meet with all the time. I meet with everybody. I constantly, people wanting to have breakfast with me or lunch with me. I've had three calls today. So I, I've got a very wide, it, it's not a narrow group of people that, are, that I meet with. And you are never one to just sit back and rest on your laurels. I've always thought those were kind of prickly anyway. Uh, so what are you, uh, what are your plans for this year as you march toward 100? Well, I'm, I'm very busy. I'm Chancellor Sheridan College. I'm on the, uh, Pearson Airport Board, our airport. I'm on three other boards. Uh, I'm honorary guardian of all the hospitals. I'm advisor to the vice president of the University of Toronto. Uh, what else? And, uh, well, so those things keep me busy. And then people are calling me for advice on different things uh, and making contacts uh, that they, that maybe I can put them in contact with people that can help them. So I'm busy. I don't, I, every day I'm busy. And I have an office at the Ontario Women's Hockey uh, uh, helping them, uh, I, they offered an office to me uh, the, the day I retired as mayor. So I've got a very heavy agenda. Hmm. It sounds like it's what keeps all of us going and certainly keeps you going. What advice have you for women who are maybe just a little younger but yeah. would like to follow in your footsteps or at least appreciate your guidance? All they have to do, they have to... They have to be interested in people. They they want they have to want to be with people, and they have to work hard, you know, and and take advantage of every opportunity that opens up for them uh, to serve people and to accomplish their goals. I mean, it's just an exciting every. They should make every day count. We're only on this earth so long, and if we don't make every day count, then we won't go very far. Well, I'm so glad that you've been on this earth for 99 years with many more to come. Hazel McCallion, all the best. Happy birthday. Happy Valentine's Day. And we will talk in a year when you celebrate 100. Okay. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Protecting bees is an important part of our ecosystem, and we're going to find out why, and also the love and joy that beekeepers find in uh, having bees in their lives. Sounds pretty straightforward, but I'll tell you, there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. We're joined on the feed by Andre Flies, president of the Ontario Beekeepers Association, third-generation beekeeper from King Township, owner of Pioneer Brand Honey. Thank you for being with us. I'm sure everyone tries every which way possible to put BEE into everything they say, Andre. They do. It's mighty sweet of you to have us here. Oh, very well done. Touche. <laughs> Why do we need to care about the health of bees? Well, frankly, I mean, everything in the, in, in the ecosystem adds um, important diversity to our food chain, and uh, bees uh, are one of the stronger links to, uh, to food and uh, 
and our ecosystem uh, when it comes to uh, animal pollinators. There is a need to protect them. Uh, why is that need becoming greater? Well, with, uh, we, we've got uh, many, many acres of land that were used to be left fallow, and uh, today's agriculture with the seed technologies that are out there and pesticides have turned a lot of formerly marginalized lands that, that uh, were left fallow for wildflowers to bloom now are becoming a lot of cash crops. So that's one reason, um, depending on which species you look at. You know, of course, what we do is we manage European honeybees, which are kind of like chickens. You know, they were brought here by our European ancestors. They're not native to North America. Um, but then there are our, our native species as well. You and your wife. And there's 411 of them. Yes, and I see you've got 400 to 500 colonies uh, on your farm, uh, and it's a beekeeping business, keeping you very busy. So tell me what it takes to be a beekeeper. <laughs> a lot of patience, <laughs> a lot of learning, a lot of paying attention. Um, you know, we're, we're farmers. We rely on, a lot of people don't think of beekeepers as farmers, but of course we are. We manage lives stock bees are our livestock um, we have to keep on top of the, the current trends of what's happening the diseases and pest profiles out there and you need to keep a really good eye on the environment and, and, and know what's flowering when so uh, it takes a lot of skill to manage bees we always encourage people to take it up as a hobby but um, just like uh, getting an, any other pet or uh, something that uh, you're going to perform husbandry with uh, you need to be up to date on, on what it takes what their, what their needs are what kind of diseases they can get um, what uh, kind of uh, forage they need, where the best places to put them are, best practices, as it were. Well, you've learned a lot, and I know that you enjoy learning more as time goes on. So let's talk about uh, what it takes to go from bee to honey. Uh, well, bees, of course, you know, at, there's maple syrup and honey have a little bit of a tie in that, uh, of course, all sugar comes from plants and uh, maple syrup comes from trees and uh, honey comes from the nectar of flowers and uh, not all flowers produce nectar or produce nectar that are valuable to particular insects, but they bring it back. It's a very high moisture content like maple syrup and uh, they store it inside uh, wax-made cells that the bees actually make themselves and uh, they regulate the temperature inside the hive. They fan their wings collectively to circulate the air through the hive and take the moisture out of that nectar. Um, they also, when they take it into their gut, um, they partially digest it. And uh, as the moisture uh, evaporates, it, uh, it becomes honey. It comes down to about 17% moisture. And then there's a process for us taking it out of the hive and extracting it. But uh, uh, they do all the, the real hard work for us. Those worker bees. Uh, let's talk about the weather. You know, we're in Canada and we are uh, in uh, the throes of a very cold uh, stretch as we march through winter. Does that have an effect on the bees and their production and their ability to survive? Uh, it can, certainly, and bees are, are no stranger to cold weather. I mean, uh, people have been keeping bees in Siberia for a very long time. Uh, we've been keeping bees here in Canada in places like Saskatchewan and northern Alberta, um, places where it is really cold and, you know, arguably some of the co coldest places in the world. But those places that I just mentioned typically have a lot of snow on the ground, and the bees can rely on that nice, heavy snow cover, um, just like being in an igloo. Um, you know, the temperature outside can change drastically but you're covered underneath all that snow and uh, you you don't have to worry so much about that it uh, regulates itself so here in Ontario 
Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember when we had winters where snow was consistent most years. We would have a nice layer of snow on the ground and the bees could be protected by it. But the past 15 years or so have been pretty sketchy and the weather's been up and down and the snow melts. And, and uh, so the bees, um, my bees, managed bees and, and the native pollinators, which 70% of which like to nest in the ground, rely on that heavy snowpack. So that, that has been bearing an impact on both my managed bees and native pollinators. Um, some native pollinators, like the uh, the rusty patch bumblebee, which was one of the most common bumblebees in Ontario, no longer exists here, and, and that's one of the main reasons to it is uh, very little snowpack. There's Can other contributions like lack of forage. We're changing habitat into uh, different things uh, like houses, highways, and uh, cash crops. But uh, um, certainly, climate uh, plays a change and, and it plays a role in their their habitat uh, loss. Can you name as many? types of bees as possible in 30 seconds. I'm fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I could certainly, there's rusty patch bumblebees, there's squash bees. Squash bees are, are uh, um, some pollinators are unique to certain flowers and that's all they pollinate is squash. Uh, we actually, uh, Sheila Cola, is, uh, she's a researcher here in Ontario and she specializes in squash bees and how it relates to the economics of producing squash and, and how they, they, they get along. Uh, there's mason bees, solitary bees uh, that aren't social like honeybees. Um, like I said earlier, there's 411 species of, of bee that call southern Ontario home. There's 4,000 in North America, and across the world there are 20,000. And uh, they're all in various states. Uh, some of them are doing better than, than they have, and uh, others are, are disappearing. They seem to know what they're doing, and they do it very well. Is this a sign of intelligence, or is it just in their DNA? Well, um, their their brains are are very reactive uh, as to what they do, but um, you know they are designed to do uh, a few jobs very very well and efficiently. And uh, you know if we were to try and make some sort of computer. Uh, um, drone, if you will, that would do the things of honeybees. I mean, the amount of technology you'd have to get into that would be in incredible. I mean, bees can see in three or four different wavelengths of light. They can transfer between that seamlessly. Um, you know, they're able to hone in on nectar sources up to 17 kilometers away and find their way back to the hive. Uh, they can store hundreds and hundreds of, of uh, kilos of, of honey in a year if the colony's big enough and they have the right sources nearby. And um, they, they manage tens of thousands of bees and, uh, and, and where they go and what they bring in um, very, very efficiently. So they're, they're, they're very efficient little machines, but uh, if you throw a question at them that uh, they're not designed to do, um, it's not going to compute. <laughs> kind of sounds like humans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Many of us are very smart, but not in all aspects of, uh, of everything, right? So it makes the world go round. You're a third-generation beekeeper. So what did you learn from your grandfather and from your father? Well, of course, I, you know, my passion came from my grandfather. He, uh, he started his first colony of bees at the Forks of the Don River in Toronto in 1930. And of course, uh, beekeeping was a very different, uh, practice back then. It was much easier to keep bees. There was a lot more flowers and, uh, uh, forage was less fragmented back then. But, uh, you know, I do remember going to beekeeper meetings with my, my father and my grandfather, uh, both very involved in local beekeeping associations, which is what we always recommend beekeepers get involved with if they're thinking about taking it up as a hobby. And, um, <clears throat> what I learned is to, uh, from both of them, 
is to hang out with as many different beekeepers as you can because everybody has a different way of doing things and uh, it's the best way to learn. You never want to limit your resources to one source. You try to find as many different people for information and uh, it's good to work, like bees, work social together to uh, to garner information for, for the benefit of all of us. And if anyone wants uh, to find out more about a local bee association to think about becoming a, perhaps a... a newbie when it comes to the beekeeping life, uh, where do you suggest that they might go for information? Uh, our website uh, for the Ontario Beekeepers Association, uh, we have great resources on there for um, uh, our, our, actually our workshops, our spring work, spring and summer workshops are coming up. So we offer a variety of uh, workshops for learning how to beginning beekeeping and advanced beekeeping. And uh, there's a list of other uh, outfitters and bee suppliers that also offer courses out there. So I always recommend the best thing to do is to join a local association. Uh, there's a list also on our website of all the local associations across the province. And um, where where you can uh, gather more information and also the University of Guelph Apiculture Program has great YouTube videos and how-to videos from uh, Professor Paul Kelly who's uh, very fun to watch. I know you have young children. I hope that they will follow in your footsteps. Andre Flies, President of the Ontario Beekeepers Association, thank you for your insights when it comes to beekeeping here on the feed. Much appreciated. Likewise. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, that's it for our show this week. If you missed any part of the feed or you have a story idea or a community event to share, please head to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.